0: This is Lisa, and you're listening to I Love That Movie. And uh, if you want to catch up with me on Twitter, I am on aya lisa cosplay. I'm also on Instagram under aya as in nancy ami lisa, and we have a closed Facebook group called I Love That Movie. The group's closed, but just send a request, and I'll add you. It's just a safe space for movie lovers to discuss their favorite films, judgment free. And my only role is keep it positive. Uh, I have a veteran back on the show today. <laughs> I have Michael. Say hi, Michael. Hello there. <laughs> how how have you been?
1: I've been great. And I've been looking forward to doing this particular movie for a long time.
0: Yes. I'm so excited that we are finally getting to it. Um, so uh, what movie are we going to talk about today?
1: One of my all-time favorite movies uh, Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. Yes, this is exciting.
0: Um, so so let's kind of, let's rewind a little bit, and we will talk about when you first saw this film. You know, did you see it in theaters, et cetera?
1: Uh, actually, before we do that, since I think this is probably the first recording since it has happened, we probably should mention Stanley, passing. Oh, yeah, that's true. Uh, very, very sad. He did so much for comic, the movies that came later, and just science fiction in general. Because Spider-Man is a science fiction story. Iron Man is a science fiction story. Almost all of them are. Yeah. And him giving them the, the human foibles and stuff passed from the comics to the movies to everything else. And he was very influential. So, Excelsior.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it- Sad. I mean, I felt like we knew it would happen someday, but regardless, it's still sad.
1: But 95 years and a wonderful life. So That's
2: true. Very true.
1: We should all do so well.
2: Right. I completely agree.
1: Okay. Now, back to where we were started there. Oh, I sure. did see it at the theater when it came out in 1968. Oh, wow. okay. um, my father took me. Oh, that's great. He, he had worked on the Apollo project, so anything space-related. Yeah, that was big in the house. Wow,
2: that's and awesome. So we
1: went and saw this. I fell in love with it immediately. I was nine. I didn't understand any of it, but <laughs> I loved every second of it. He wasn't so thrilled. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: that's funny.
0: I I, uh, I think, you know, I don't know when I first saw this. Probably, mm, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago. I mean, I, I didn't see it until I was an adult already. Um, and I I loved it the first time I saw it, but I was older. <laughs> I wasn't nine. Um, I'm not sure how I would have reacted to it as a kid or even as a teenager. I feel like I needed that time to sort of process it. But I mean, visually, regardless, at any age, it's incredibly stunning.
1: And I think that's what I fell in love with originally was the just the visual... Smartest board that it was. Oh, definitely. And it was just so amazing to watch. And I knew there was something special about what I was watching. I had the same thing with Citizen Kane. I saw that at a very young age, and didn't really get, you know, this is a grand, fantastic camera shot. And look at that, you know, way this moves. And but something just said, this is special what you're watching. This is amazing. And it was later on that to have the real appreciation I have for it now.
0: Yeah, no, I, I completely relate to that. I think I had that reaction to, to The Shining when I was really young. Um, you know, I, I loved it. I thought it was a great story and a great movie, but I also thought it was special. But it, like you're saying, I didn't know why. I mean, visually, it was just incredible, but I, I couldn't have put into words back then why that was.
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: Yeah, yeah. So with that, I think I'm going to read the synopsis really quick for this movie. and then Oh, I'm kinda... interested to hear what this one's going to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is the one I chose this for this time. Uh, so here we go. Let, let, let's give it a try. 2001, A Space Odyssey. An imposing black structure provides a connection between the past and the future in this enigmatic adaption of a short story by revered sci-fi author Arthur C. Clarke. When Dave Bowman and other astronauts are sent on a mysterious mission, their ship's computer, Hal, begins to display increasingly strange behavior leading up to a tense showdown between man and machine that results in a mind-bending trek through space and time. That's not bad. Yeah, it's not bad. I, I, this, this was one of the movies where I did kind of read through a few of them and, and pick the one that I felt best reflected it, and I actually really liked that.
1: Yeah, that's, that's not bad at all. Some of them are just really terrible.
0: I know. <laughs> I totally agree. Um, I have a couple quick facts I was going to give. And then, you know, if you have some thoughts you want to throw in there or you have your own list of facts, we can do that, too. Um, and then we'll kind of start talking about Stanley Kubrick after that. So here we go. Here's a couple quick facts. Uh, number one, there's no dialogue in the first 25 minutes of the movie, you know, ending with a stewardess speaking at the 2538 mark, nor in the last 23 minutes of the film. Uh, with these two lengthy sections and other shorter ones, there's around 88 dialogue-free minutes in the entire movie. And the movie's only like an hour and 40-something minutes, right?
1: Oh, it it very much is almost a silent movie. Mm-hmm. And even the dialogue that is there, um, until you get into the Discovery, isn't much. It's mostly pleasantries. There's a little bit of talking about you know, the uh, cover story or uh, the Tycho Magnetic Anomaly. But Mm -hmm. uh, other than that, it's just very, very little. He talks with his daughter, but nothing really deep in the dialogue. It is a visual film.
0: Absolutely. No, 100%. Um, I can't wait to to dive more into that aspect of it, for sure, because I have a lot of thoughts on that. But uh, it's also uh, the last movie made about men on the moon before Neil, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin walked there in real life. Uh more than 50 years later there's still conspiracy theories uh, uh theorists who ex- <laughs> who insist that it's not a coincidence and claim that all the footage of Armstrong's voyage was a hoax uh film directed by Stanley Kubrick using leftover scenes and props from the movie <laughs> I've heard this more than once so not spread Yeah e- even though
1: <laughs> they don't look anything alike but uh and Kubrick would have used better camera shots on the moon.
0: Right, the moon um, would have looked
1: better. <laughs> yeah, there's no doubt about it. And it would have taken Kubrick five years to do it, so it, it never would have worked out.
0: <laughs> that's just so funny to me. Um, but but yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess it's a compliment to Stanley Kubrick in a way. Like, hey, your movie was very... It was just so groundbreaking I think that, that maybe that's what instills doubt into theorist's minds. I don't know.
1: <laughs> well, other than theorists, are just looking for doubt to be instilled. Yeah, but, uh, yeah that's
0: true, too. That's true, too. <laughs> uh,
1: but there is, there is a difference uh, in this film in particular. He didn't go to the Hollywood Art Department to go give me a spaceship, because mm-hmm. he would have gotten what we'd seen always before. They either looked like a rocket, or they looked like a saucer. And that was yeah. pretty much it. And the spaceships in this don't look anything like that. He went to NASA.
2: That's so awesome. And he had
1: NASA engineers, what are you guys working on? What will this stuff look like? And that's what we got was stuff that looked real.
0: Yeah. That answers a few of my questions or thoughts that I had also, but I can't wait to talk about that too. Uh, So the only Oscar won by the film was for special visual effects. Uh, It was awarded to Stanley Kubrick and was his sole win from the 13 nominations it received. Uh, however, while Kubrick designed much of the look of the film and its effects, many of the technicians involved felt it was wrong for him to receive the sole credit. Uh, following this controversy, the Academy tightened its eligibility rules. you have any
3: thoughts and, on that?
1: <laughs> yeah, it, it's true, but it was Kubrick who pushed these guys to do that stuff.
2: Yeah. yeah. To
1: do things they'd never done before and to use camera uh, tricks that hadn't been used that way before and He's very much responsible for it, although you know, people like Doug Trumbull stuff are you know, they're geniuses, and they, the film couldn't have been made without them.
0: Right, yeah. I mean, yeah, I guess like with any movie, it's not like the director's the sole responsibility for you know, everything, but at the same time, they're also the biggest influence. So, yeah, I could see that.
1: Um, and I've always found it odd that the person who gets the Oscar for Best Picture is the producer.
0: Yeah, that's Who true. really
1: wrote the checks. <laughs>
0: right. and that was
1: about the end of it.
0: It's like, you, they should get an Oscar that says Best Business Decision and not yeah. <laughs> Best Movie. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, so let's talk a little bit about Stanley Kubrick next.
3: Stanley. Wow. <laughs>
1: uh, I've, I've seen an interview with Steven Spielberg, who's pretty good at making movies.
4: Uh, yeah, I would and, say
1: so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty good. Um, He said no one has ever done it better than Stanley, that that is the pinnacle of film as the art form. I agree. He's my absolute favorite director. And whether it's. 2001 or it's uh, Clockwork Orange or Dr. Strangelove, they're just all brilliantly shot and they have a style to them. Completely different movies, completely different subject matters, but there's a style to it when you look at it. It's Kubrick. You know it immediately. Uh, There's over bright lights. Uh, Just the way the camera moves and such like that, it's it's instantly identifiable as him and instantly identifiable as brilliant.
0: Oh, I, I couldn't agree more. I think, you know, in all the episodes we've done, I think this is the only, only the second Stanley Kubrick film we've covered. Um obviously we covered The Shining cuz that's my favorite.
2: <laughs> and that
0: was one that I picked. Uh but but yeah, I, I agree with you. His films are highly visual and you know one big takeaway I had from watching 2001 this time that I hadn't thought about before is that I, I I've heard a lot of criticisms of people that are sort of like anti-Kubrick that kind of I think they feel like fans like us that we're all sort of faking it or something like Oh, these movies are just odd and they don't make sense. And it's just like pure pretentiousness to pretend like you get it. But I think what those people are missing is that you don't have to have a big answer for everything. You don't have to have everything explained and spelled out. And it's okay for things to be ambiguous and for you to draw your own conclusions. Um, I think that's different from just being confusing.
1: You know? Oh, I'll, I'll absolutely agree. In fact, uh, the- Arthur C. Clarke, who wrote the the short story and then the novel for 2001, that was one of the bones of contention him and Stanley had. Arthur C. Clarke is a scientist, besides being a writer. He wants to explain everything. Stanley does. He wants to put it out there. You make up your mind. Uh, you know, I'm not going to tell you what it's about. You tell me what it was about. And it's a it's, it's something kind of more in this film than any other, I would say.
3: I agree. But yeah, uh, yeah.
1: even something like Full Metal Jacket, the ending of Full Metal Jacket, it's like, he's not telling you this is right, this is wrong. You decide.
2: Right. Right. And like the, the
0: part of watching the movie is that it's an experience. I mean, what separates a movie from a book? It, you know, one of the things about it that's separate is that it's visual. And I think that uh, that this kind of movie, you know, there, there's probably two different sides of people. People that favor the book over the movie, and they probably favor the book because you get more of an explanation for everything. Um, but I think Stanley Kubrick felt you didn't need an explanation for everything, like you're saying. You, you The experience of the film itself. I, I like his movies because I do feel that they give that. They evoke an experience and... Uh, It's hard to capture that in a movie, I think, and I don't know, I think that's what makes it so brilliant, Um, especially at a time when this movie came out where a lot of this stuff, I mean, it's still science fiction, but more so, we hadn't even gone to the moon yet, you know, so, like, I don't know, it's just incredible to me.
1: Um, Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, And and to have it portrayed in such a realistic manner that, Mm -hmm. yeah. This is what it would look like. This is the way it's going to happen. And then, you know, to have watched it in 68 and then lived through 2001, and went, eh, we're not quite there. Uh, yeah. It was somewhat <laughs> <true>. disappointing, but.
0: <laughs> but. But in other ways, you're even further, we're even further, and we can probably talk about that, too, a little bit. But, yeah, I think that. uh I think that he, he's the kind of director you either really like or you don't. Um, and it's because of that ambiguity. If you like having an experience and having to make up your own mind and feeling like you're really in space and feeling like you're really there in the moment, and if that's as valuable to you as like, the storytelling, then I think you really like his movies. And if not, you might not be as big of a
1: fan. Um, I'd be I'd interested think to read the And I also think his films though. grow on you.
0: They do. They do. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, like I said, I'm, not, I'm trying to pinpoint even think about it until we were recording I I didn't I can't remember the first time I saw this but I think that uh that it's a movie that definitely rewards reviewing and it's only made me appreciate it more over time I think like the older I get the more I appreciate it because I see more and more uh each time and I have more context for what for what I'm looking at I think I mean the movie gives you a lot of time to think about things while you're watching it and I I like and yeah, so I think I think it's I think you have to watch it a couple of times.
1: <laughs> yeah, it, it is very very slowly paced. Um, it's it's not a Star Wars or something with action going on all the time. Uh, there's virtually no action, very very little. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you do have time to mull it over and watch it. Um, your favorite, The Shining. I, I saw that. Uh, I don't know if it was opening night, but it was very very close to it. And I thought it was okay. And then as I watched it more, it, it just it became more and more brilliant to me as I watched it more. It's just like, oh, look what he's doing there. Look how that bullshit was that. It's just, it's, there's so much to take in. Repeated it, viewings of Kubrick films are virtually required.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. And I think also the more time that goes on, you see how much it influenced other movies. And I think, you know, you could say a lot of things about Kubrick. You don't have to be a fan, but you just can't deny the impact that he had on cinema and the impact that he had on all of our favorite other directors. Um, pretty much every director that I really admire looks up to Kubrick. Um, so, you know, you can't deny that there has to be a reason. And we will talk about all those reasons in this podcast. <laughs> so,
1: well, yeah. And it, it's, you know, it's, you mentioned Spielberg. Lucas, Zemeckis, all of them. Yeah, I, I watched this. That this is how it's done. This is what I would aspire to do.
2: Yeah, exactly.
0: Um, so I have the two, act- the two main actors that I wanted to talk about. But because this movie, I think, is so visual and because we don't meet them right away, I was wondering maybe we should kind of just go through the flow of the film itself, uh, some of your favorite scenes, and we'll kind of mention them as they come up.
1: Does that work? Oh, yeah that that works perfectly because yeah. I'd I'd love to go through it chronologically, whereas normally I jump all over the place. This film
2: you kind of
0: have
1: it, to. It yeah. has <laughs> such a thread uh, that moves through it, and uh, you watched it on a DVD, right?
0: I did. You know what's funny is um, I was watching it last night. I had like a little four pack set that I mentioned in the group. It's basically four sci fi classics. It's uh, this movie. Soylent Green, uh, Forbidden Planet and the Time Machine. And so it's in standard definition. I think I bought it like well over 10 years ago and uh I have to say like even though it was standard definition and I know that my my uh TV upscales it a little bit because it is a 4K TV, but um but yeah, it looked really good and it's not even Blu-ray. I mean last night uh me and my husband were like thinking, "Oh my god, we need to buy this." upgraded because i can't believe how good it looks
1: already (laughs) i have the blu-ray of course of course i've had this on (laughs) vhs and i've had it on dvd and now i have it on blu-ray and i'll probably own it on whatever you know holographic thing that comes in the future but uh yeah it it looks fantastic and but on now on the uh, dvd did they have the intro the black screen
0: yeah they did in fact okay uh for like a good five minutes i i admit it i forgot about that part (laughs) and i was like (laughs) something's wrong with the dvd and then i was like in my head i was like no lisa it's not that it's a kubrick film this is intentional but then i was like doubting myself and like i had to check
1: (laughs) yeah but just that and you know in the theater that's the way it was presented and you just had this music kind of just this odd almost tuning of an orchestra Mm -hmm. Going on with this black screen that goes on for four or five minutes. And it's just to get you settled and prepared and draw you on in. And it's just brilliant. And then, of course, that segues into our first scenes there and the dawn of man. Um, Have you watched any of the uh, YouTube on how they shot that?
2: No, no, I haven't. Tell me about it.
1: Well, you open up with all the uh, shots of the African landscape there. None of those are film; Those are all still shots.
2: Oh, okay.
1: Stanley didn't want to go to Africa. (laughs) So (laughs) he sent photographers on out to take these pictures. They would send him back pictures. He would impose a grid on them and then look at them and say, okay, reshoot this one, this one, and this one. And the peak of the mountain that is in A7, I'd rather have that in B9 and readjust the picture and take it again.
5: Wow. Because
1: he's such a perfectionist. It's like, that's the thing I want. And then all of that background, even when you have the uh, proto-humans, that's a set that they're wandering around in.
2: Yeah, yeah. It kind of looks like And then a set. the background
1: yeah. is a picture. It's a solid shot.
2: Oh, okay.
1: And it is front projected on there. And they did a thing with mirrors so that the front projection, the shadows that they would cast, the actors, would be directly behind them and you'd never see them. And it's really unique. And it it sets up a really unique look for the entire film, uh, even when you get the two warring tribes of protohumans.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: you never get the side shot where you see one on one side and one on the other which would be the typical to right. you know, show the between them and such like that it's always from in front or in back and you have, you know, they come into the foreground to show you that you know, we're on this side or we're on that side and that's because of the filming that they use that that had to be the way it was done but it also makes it more their wide shot You have to start thinking right away, what do I want to look at? Mm -hmm. You aren't directed at, look here, look here, look here, just you see these panoramic shots. And there you go. But story-wise, you've got the proto-human. And if you're watching careful enough, you can see that they're failing.
0: Yeah, they're not doing so hot.
1: Yeah, they're they're having a hard time getting enough to eat. They're being attacked by predators, the leopard. uh, And they've got these tapers wandering around with them competing with them for the same boot. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, they're not going to survive, but then the monolith appears and just, you know, they wake up one morning and bang, here's this new thing, which would have to be absolutely shocking because nothing new would ever appear in their world. It's always going to be the same. And eventually one of them gets the courage to
3: touch it. And they all touch it. And that's when things
1: change. And I I hate to go too much into what does this movie mean, because anyone who's listening to this hasn't seen it, please watch it and decide for yourself what it means. But to me, it taught them a very important lesson. Some people say it's tools, because it's right afterwards that Moonwatcher, that's the name of the lead ape. Yeah, yeah. picks up the bone and starts banging on the other bones. Personally, I think it taught them violence.
0: I I agree. Um I've I've watched the movie a couple times and I've watched a couple like you know different viewpoints and explanations on the movie and I agree with you. I think I think that it's it's violence uh that's a theme throughout the film seems to be part of evolution and what separates us and what propels him forward and um
2: yeah yeah no I, I, I agree
1: with you because as soon as they learn that and you know learn how to they kill the tapers and now they can eat
2: right because
0: if it was um, just they're
1: well on their way
0: yeah and I think that if they were just learning how to use a tool he would have done something different like he wouldn't it wouldn't have been so violent and that theme wouldn't be repeated throughout the movie too
1: exactly yeah and so, you know, they can eat. Of course, the next thing they need is water, which they've been fighting with the other tribe over water. And we've seen that scene before, where they yell and scream at each other to chase each other off from a little watering hole they have.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: And then, of course, the big, uh, you can go biblical, it's Cain, Cain and Abel, you can, you know, however you want to interpret it. They come up and he kills the leader of the other tribe. And, no, the water's ours. And we will survive.
2: Right. Yeah.
1: But they had to have violence to get there. Otherwise, they probably would have died out. Mm-hmm. And, and there it, would have been no men.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, that's, and then that, and that's when the score hits too,
2: right? After that happens.
1: Um, well, yeah. Well, of course, you've got the Thus, bro, thus Broke, this is Broska. I, I never can not say it correctly. Yeah. Boom, 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 boom. Which is amazing. But there's there's other little things. In there. There's the alignments of the planets. As they touch the monolith. Which you will see. Reflected again and again and again. Mm-hmm. That things are just lining up perfectly. To make this happen. And there's obviously. An intelligence behind the monolith. Right. Um, and the interesting thing about you. Yeah, what does this movie mean? If you go on YouTube. And type in 2001. Meaning. <laughs> Just plethora of videos will come up and different ones and they're religious and they're non-religious and they're just different interpretations of what people think this movie is about, and what it's trying to say. And that's, I think, is what makes it great, is that it is ambiguous that people can come up with their own ideas for it. And even Clark, while explaining the science and everything, doesn't really explain that part of it. He leaves that for, yeah, you decide. You know, what What is this otherworldly intelligence that has come and interfered, or helped, or however you want to look at it, right to move man along?
0: Right. Yeah, I think the only definitive thing you can say is that each time the monolith appears, a change happens. Uh, whether the, and, and it's an advancement, but the motive, the why, all that, I mean, that's, I think, up to you to decide
1: exactly so he 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 kills the other guy and then you get the uh three million year jump cut uh maybe the longest jump cut in all of film
2: (laughs) yeah definitely
0: he
1: throws the bone up in the air and bang it's a spaceship now what is your take on the spaceship it turns into
0: um, well, okay, I'm trying to remember. I saw a behind the scenes that initially it was going to be something else. Uh, like, it was going to be something to do with, like, nuclear power, but they ended up, because of the way things were in 1968, they kind of decided to go away from that? Is that what uh, you Actually,
1: it, it would look exactly the same. Okay. But they don't give any context to it.
2: hmm
1: It's a, uh... Orbiting nuclear
2: weapon. Oh, okay, okay, okay.
1: And so one weapon has evolved into another.
2: Right, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: From the bone where, you know, we can kill one at a time to the orbiting nuclear weapon where we can now kill millions of people at once.
5: Exactly. This part
1: yeah. of the evolution, part of the violence we have learned is to do this.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> but then it breaks into the walls. Yeah. And. You see the beauty of the space of the space world, the twirling ships and the you know the beautiful waltz music going on, and it's just gorgeous. And they decided to leave it more positive and not identify that this was a nuclear weapon.
2: Oh, okay, okay.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, that 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 whole sequence is so gorgeous. I I completely agree.
3: And, of course, Pan Am,
1: (laughs) flight.
0: I think that scene is, like, really mind-blowing now. I I think it took me a second when I was watching it again to think, like, oh, man, you know, uh, all those screens on the back of each seat, like, we have that now. I Mm -hmm. don't know that, like, people nowadays watching it would, if that would click right away, you know, like, how incredibly advanced, that seemed in 1968 and how it's literally what we have now.
1: What what I found really interesting is uh, the screens are flat.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and he's also holding something close to an iPad.
2: Right, right. Um,
1: <laughs> but screens were not flat then.
2: Yeah, they were curved. Screens
1: were big cathode ray tubes and they were very big and bulky and deep. And you, you see that in some science fiction of the error Mm-hmm. where they recreate, you know, the big bulky cathode ray tube. He'd thought it through to no, we're we're going to have flat displays. And a lot of those means that he had to hide the cathode ray tubes oh. to make it look like a flat screen. Which is, a yeah, you know, just brilliant. And you you look at it now and just think, oh, yeah, it's a flat screen. Yeah. But they didn't exist.
0: They didn't, and uh, he's pretty much, like, FaceTiming with his daughter. And
1: exactly
0: (laughs) like we have that now. Um, Also, my husband pointed out when he has that like iPad type tablet, it's even in portrait instead of landscape, which like that's Mm -hmm. another thing. Like, you know, most computer computers were like they're in landscape back then and and uh, up until recently. So like that's interesting that they would pick up on that, too. I think just all of it, um, you giving that insight about you know, that he went to NASA. I actually wondered about that because it was before we landed on the moon. It was before space shuttles and before any space stations, right? Oh, absolutely. So they must have, either they gave him access to see all that or also did his film end up influencing how those look? Because I know a lot of people after seeing this movie later grew up to work for NASA. And so, you know, was it sort of like a, a cycle there of like, Art imitating life, imitating art,
1: you know? Oh, I'm absolutely sure. And, you know, the early days of the cell phone and the flip phone, there's no doubt Star Trek influenced that.
3: Right, And I'm sure
1: that, yeah, 2001 influenced what things would look like while they influenced what things would look like in 2001.
0: Yeah. I mean, the fact that when you watch this movie especially this part, it does not feel dated. Like, it honestly feels very modern, even now. And, I mean, I I just, it's incredible that uh, Kubrick had that kind of, I guess, ability to see what was going to consistently look, you know, real for such a long time.
3: It's in the,
1: it's in the little details. Yeah. There are no flat surfaces. Mm
4: Mm-hmm
1: you know, little things on there because that's the way spacecraft ended up actually looking. Um, the lamb that landed on the moon, not sleek, not pretty at all. And little doohickeys and stuff hanging all over it because it had a function mm-hmm. and they didn't have to come up with a function for everything they put on the side of a ship, but it looked like, well, it must have a function because I look at the lamb and I can't tell you what everything that's hanging off that thing does.
2: Sure.
1: And, but it worked in your mind going, whoa, this looks real. There's detail to it.
2: Yeah, it's it's
0: incredible. I I mean, and just I mean this sequence in particular I think uh maybe had some of the most influence because I feel like and so you probably can speak better to this than I can, but it seems like before this movie sci fi had a look and then after it it drastically changed <laughs> after this movie. Oh. Is that
3: right?
1: Absolutely. Um it it set a bar for special effects um, that wouldn't be touched again till nineteen seventy seven when Star Wars.
0: And and you could argue that it even bar. yeah, even influenced that, especially with that like bass scene in this movie. Oh.
1: Absolutely. And and George Lucas says, Yes, saw this in the <laughs> theaters and went, That's what I wanna do and So he and then Lucas set a new bar for it, and before that, it was, you know, the Flash Gordon rockets with the sparklers coming out of the back, and which I love. But (laughs) oh yeah, absolutely. But just and Kubrick didn't think much of science fiction before, at all. Clark was a big fan. Kubrick was not. Uh, In fact, uh, Kubrick used to find it odd that he could sit there and watch some hokey sci-fi film and enjoy every minute of it. Kubrick just went, it looks terrible. (laughs) And his goal was he wanted to make a really good sci-fi film. Now, I will argue there were good sci-fi films before. Uh, Time Machine, we talked about the other day, being one of them. Um, Fantastic Planet, absolutely. Day the Earth Stood Still. There were some really good films out there, but for the most part, sci-fi was relegated to the B-movie category and they didn't spend a lot of money and they didn't look really nice
0: yeah and i think too the tone is drastically changed by this movie there's just like this haunting seriousness throughout the film that you know i i think greatly influenced movies like alien and you know a lot of sort of darker serious sci-fi now it just it looks almost identical like i just saw you know, Annihilation last year and I can feel that seriousness and that tone in that film and in a lot of others I could give you a big list but I, I just think it really, it really set the tone for a lot of movies going forward.
1: Well, and I'd say without 2001 there never would have been an Alien or a Blade Runner. Right, or, yeah. Or, you know, so many other films because it did, sci-fi can be serious.
5: Mm-hmm. And, uh, and Sci-fi very... can,
1: you know, and it can look really good although it can be successful, wasn't necessarily what 2001 (laughs) did.
2: Right. Or some of the other ones you mentioned.
1: (laughs) It didn't go over well, uh, 2001, when it came out. Got a lot of mixed reviews. And it was just about to be pulled.
4: Yeah. Yeah. I saw that. Yeah.
1: And uh, then uh, the kids discovered it. And they discovered that, you know, Uh, some of this new uh, wacky tabacky going around with made it really interesting to watch. (laughs) And they started filling up theaters. And they kept, you know, it's like more and more and more people kept coming back to watch it. And that's when it, you know, really blossomed up. No, it's making money. It's becoming successful. But it almost just died and got pulled out of theaters. Um, People complaining and wanting their money back. It's like, it doesn't make sense. I don't understand it. What is this? You know, it's just garbage and it's like now it's considered one of the seminal films of all time and it's interesting how that happens
0: Mm -hmm. i also think that uh for a long time before i saw this movie like maybe when i was younger i didn't have a great interest in it because that's how it was advertised to me like oh you'll really understand it but only if you're stoned and so i thought that for a long time and i thought oh that doesn't sound like something i'd be into And so I was, like, pretty surprised when I watched it how cerebral it is because I just, I just expected that to be a requirement. But, I mean, I also think that after watching it a few times, like, I could also, I also understand that viewpoint, too, though, in that, like, it is an experience and, you know, taking drugs is an experience. So, I I mean, I do see the connection. I just don't think, I don't think you necessarily
1: have to, to to, to enjoy it. (laughs) Yeah, and like I said, you know, I saw it when I was nine. Uh, right. So. <laughs>
0: oh, you weren't right. doing acid
1: at uh, <laughs> No, no, I, I was straight when I saw it. And it was just the visual impact, though, to it that really made me fall in love with it immediately. It was just I thought it was just so gorgeous to watch. And then later read the book. And this is one of the few films where I'd say, yeah, watch the movie first,
0: mm-hmm.
1: then read the book.
0: Yeah, because I feel like the book answers so many questions. I haven't read the book, but um, but I've read about some of the differences and seen some of the differences, and I think it answers like too many questions, I think, for my taste, and I feel like you lose some of the magic in the movie if you already know that going into it. Like, if you know yeah. the answer to everything.
1: Yeah, I'll agree. It's like, watch the film, let it wash over you, go back and watch it again, and, you know, it- Think about it and mull over it, which is one of the great things about Kubrick films, is you watch them and then you want to think about it and mull over them. And then, yeah, if you want to delve into it more, read the book and yeah, you'll still get a better understanding for the film. But let give yourself that experience of just experiencing the movie first, because the book is really a novelization of the script. And that's, you know, it's not like, oh, this was a classic piece of sci-fi work that they made a movie of. Right. They were done together at the same time. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's it's a different than most books of the movie.
0: Yeah, because the inception of the idea was based on a short story that Arthur C. Clarke did. But then they expounded it into the movie and then he also wrote the book after that, right? kind of Yeah, well, simultaneously. well, the
1: short story is uh, the same song. Yeah. And um, it's the central is basically that Floyd part of the film.
2: Oh, okay.
1: uh, Finding the uh, monolith on the moon. And originally, that was the end of the movie.
2: Oh, okay.
1: That that was where it was going to end. You would go from the monolith having been with the proto-humans and then being found on the moon, and that was the end of the movie, and then Kubrick expanded the rest of that.
3: I see.
0: Okay, okay, that makes sense.
3: But so we've got Floyd going to
1: the moon. It's it's really, you know, it's, it's so matter of fact daily. He's asleep in most of the trip. <laughs> He's not looking out the window. He's not thrilled by, hey, we're going to the moon. It's like, this is every day. Uh, you've got the stewardesses doing their job and walking around the Gravity free with their little grip shoes and such, and some of that is just filmed so incredibly, you know, with the camera obviously being turned with them, but it looks perfect. Like, yeah, they have no gravity; they're just being held on by their feet.
0: Yeah, I, I, uh, I had read that um, Christopher Nolan, you know, you can tell he's a big Kubrick fan. That yes. you know, there are parts in Inception that really call back to to scenes in this movie. Um, I think of the hallway scene. And the way that, you know, the set that they built and the way they move the camera reminds me a lot of this part.
1: Exactly. And just, you know, the little thing, she picks up the pen, puts it back in his pocket, and it's just every day, yes, we're going to the moon, and it's weightless. And a nice little piece of humor with the instructions for using the toilet.
5: (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) You've got 20 minutes of reading before you can use the toilet. (laughs) But, you know, and but they stop the space station and he embarks there and has to identify himself, talks with the Russians.
0: Oh, I want to say real quick, when he has to identify himself, it's a lot like now when you go through customs and there's like a part where you take a picture and answer a bunch of c- questions on a screen. Like you can do that now and it expedites mm-hmm. like going through. I just noticed that. this Oh, time.
1: absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah. And saw that coming. Yeah. But, you yeah, know, so he comes through, he talks with the Russians. And you have no idea what why he's going up. And you get just these little... Where he can't talk about why no one's answering at Tycho. Mm-hmm. And why they wouldn't let a moon bus stop. A Russian moon bus. And there's obviously a little tension still between the Russians and the Americans. Um, these are scientists, so they talk to each other. But there's obviously... Cause this might cause a row, you know, that's against the rules. And...
0: and you're talking about the scene where they're all sitting in those red chairs, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And that scene mimics sort of the beginning scene too, right? With the proto humans, like it kind of, like I saw a video where they, they took a lot of different scenes in the movie where there's conflict and they look, they're like sort of staged similarly. Mm. I not if you've heard I, that. I hadn't,
1: I, I hadn't actually noticed that, but that's, yeah. that's...
0: This yeah. thing, like it's a more evolved type of violence in that it's all just political. It's not they're not like punching each other, but you can tell that there's tension and that it's serious and that it's like urgent. And they're sort of framed a little bit the same as the as the protohumans in the first
3: part of the film.
1: And you get the first hint of what the uh, cover story is. Yeah, that some sort of virus from out there has shown on up and you know you really should be telling us about this it's like i really can't talk about it <laughs> and i gotta go yeah but they stop at the space station then they get into another craft that takes them to the moon and it's very interesting and very uh perfect way you could do it because at that point you need very little thrust
5: mm-hmm.
1: and you basically just kind of fall towards the moon and head on out and and land and that was I thought that was really interesting. And then watching the that craft lamp is just a gorgeous scene also where you mm-hmm. see it open on up and then it comes and it's bathed in the red light. Oh just so beautiful to watch.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the aesthetic. Where you're really just
1: watching yeah. machinery, but it's gorgeous <laughs> and with the music it just works.
2: Yeah.
0: No, I think the aesthetics of the movie are a huge part of it, why it works, I completely agree.
1: Yeah, that just beautiful picture fest, but yeah, the fact that he sleeps and that this is just everyday sort of stuff is really interesting, because they don't make a big deal about Yeah, we're in space.
0: Yeah. Okay. (laughs) It's something that carries over a lot, I think, to, like, the movie Alien, as you mentioned earlier, obviously influenced a lot, like.
1: Oh, exactly yeah. the the dock workers in space. You know mm-hmm. the guys who are in the bottom half. There, it's like, yeah, we're here to do a job, and what's my cut?
0: Yeah, there's something more grounded about that than watching like space marines or something. You know, when it's everyday people, I think you on you instantly like connect with them more, and it somehow makes it more believable.
1: So Floyd gets to the moon and has the meeting you know, with the photographer. Who's using a GoPro uh, or what would, you know, imagined a GoPro would be him wandering around taking pictures of everyone at this meeting and explains, you know, that it's a cover story and you still don't know what it is they found. They found something in a crater and they're not positive. And then you have the moon bus scene uh, with the sandwiches. It's like they're getting better at these. (laughs) And, actually, uh, they they got much better at food than they thought they would. But, uh, (laughs) again, a beautiful scene as it goes zipping across. And there's just a, there's an uneasy tension about it because you really don't, what's going on here? What have they found? What are they doing?
0: Right. I like the general, just like distrust of a big, like corporation or government. I think also carries Mm -hmm. over into a lot of (laughs) sci-fi.
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, And interesting enough, it was you know the Pan Am flight that uh, it would become private enterprise that would be doing the flights to the moon and stuff like that.
2: Yeah, and at the time
1: it was like, no, space belonged to NASA. Space was a government thing. Right. You weren't going to have private companies doing this is like saw that all and now we have well for the united states virtually all space flight is private
4: yeah
1: yeah when we want to go to the uh space station we have to get to ride the Russians. <laughs> but um yeah and, and you mentioned the phone call
0: mm-hmm.
1: which the uh what was it it's a dollar thirty-two or something
0: <laughs> and it's through like Bell, right? <laughs> like something that, yeah, yeah.
1: which would yeah a t and t uh yeah. mob Bell uh before the breakup, <laughs> so he didn't imagine that they would break up, that it would still just be the phone company,
3: yeah, I but think
1: that's great a dollar thirty two calling from a space station to there. it was very funny in sixty eight because you would spend that for a minute of phone call from United States to Europe.
2: Oh, okay.
1: So it was like a dollar thirty-two to call for the moon. Wow, I can't wait.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's hard, I think, back then, and even like when I was growing up, to imagine like the phone companies not being as important as they are. Lay in line type stuff, you know. It's really hard to picture. But yeah, now that, here we are.
1: <laughs> and yeah, now we just carry our phone around with us, and we wouldn't have to go to a kiosk. But <laughs> yeah. the, the uh, this was one of the first films for product placement. Oh, really? Uh, Bell Telephone paid a lot of money to be the phone company there. Um, Pan Am paid a lot of money to be the the shuttle company. There's there's quite a bit of product placement here, and it was one of the first to go because he yeah he needed a huge budget to make this film, and being able to bring that money in helped a lot.
0: And he kind of, Stanley Kubrick kind of had the mind for that, right? Because, I mean, didn't he come from advertising?
1: As a matter of fact, yeah.
0: Yeah, so I think he kind of, he had that foresight to think like, hey, there's a way to use this in my art that it can like sort of be seamlessly blended in without being like an obvious just ad. And I think he does that really, really well in this movie, where it's sort of like, He's, you know, needs the money to make the movie, but it's also sort of like a commentary on it. I don't know. It's it's just a really cool way of incorporating it. I thought.
1: <laughs> well, it, it it helped again with making that uh, connection that this mm-hmm. is kind of every day. Yeah. Is that oh Pan Am, I know them. Oh Bell, I know them. Um, uh the Hilton. <laughs> yeah, exactly the Hilton on the moon. Well, of course there'd be Hilton on the moon if there were to be a hotel on the moon. <laughs> and it wasn't. Like, say, Back to the Future 2, where you felt you were just being slapped by Pizza Hut. Right. <laughs> you know, we're here. <laughs> Look at us. Buy our stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just organically went to the story and it made you feel more real as mm-hmm. to what you were looking at. It's like, well, yeah, this makes sense that they would be there because they're the phone company.
2: Right.
3: <laughs> but uh, yeah, they,
1: he gets there, they have the meeting get on the moon bus, and that set where the monolith is buried under yes. the ground is so gorgeous.
0: And I mean, this is another part, I think, that literally looks like modern. Like, I feel like I've watched sci-fi films in the past couple of years. The When they're on the moon, it literally just looks
2: like they still look like that.
1: You know? Yeah, it's exactly. That's exactly what it should look like. And uh, the spacesuits, interestingly enough, and you'll see a different version later on the Discovery, very similar to what they're wearing at this one's. Those were actual NASA prototypes.
2: Oh, really? Wow! They were
1: one of the ones they considered. Uh, they didn't make it. We ended up with the more bulky-looking suit that you saw Neil and Buzz and the rest walk around the moon on. But those were actual prototype spacesuits from NASA that they would look like this.
2: That's incredible. So,
1: yeah, he was going for absolute realism uh, wherever he could.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: but you've got the monolith and there it is. And it's buried under the ground. They've had to dig down to get it. Uh, when you read the book, you find out what it did was it put out a magnetic field that they measured and then went what's under here
3: causing this and down down to find it. And, uh,
1: it's, it's really interesting. It's like, okay, we dropped the monolith among the proto-humans, give them violence, let them survive. But we're not really interested in them
3: until they can get to the closest
1: satellite, the moon, and not only get there, but detect that this is under there and dig it out.
0: <laughs> it's like a test.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's like, uh, they aren't going to be terribly interesting to us till they could do that. Mm-hmm. And so they do that, and then
3: sunlight hits it, which it's been buried. And
1: so when it finally gets sunlight on it, it goes off.
4: Oh, I didn't. And make that sends connection. off
1: its signal. And yeah, they're there and they're taking the pictures, and bang, the thing goes off, and it's screeching in their ears, and it sends a signal, flying on off towards Jupiter. Yeah. Although, they don't tell you that at this point in time. You don't find that out until later on in the film.
0: And this scene, too, like when they're touching it and they're in pain from the sound it's emitting, it's it's sort of calls back to, again, that first scene that we saw with the prototype humans, and they're touching it and reacting to it. So it's kind of...
1: Yeah, and screeching and, and hollering. and mm-hmm. uh, By the way, all of that sound was the actual actors in the monkey suits. Oh, really? Yeah, There's there's no... Overdub tape, they made those noises. Oh, wow. Um, The main guy who was Moonwatcher was a mime. Oh. uh, And an actor, and he was hired, and he hired the other ones. And actually, they gave them personalities. They all had names. And um, it's not just a bunch of guys jumping around looking like monkeys. It was very, very well planned out exactly (laughs) what would happen and who would be where.
0: Oh, that's really cool. Before we had Andy Serkis.
1: <laughs> exactly. And, of course, uh, the the makeup on them is amazing. Yeah. Probably overshadowed a little bit because Planet of the Apes came out just a few months before.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, it's probably one of the only parts of the film that I think does look a little bit dated. But regardless, just it's because... It's still of...
1: pretty good. Yeah, it's still good. Uh, it's not bad. <laughs> And they uh, worked for specific body types. They wanted them very lanky and thin, so that the suits wouldn't look over bulky.
5: Yeah. Because
1: they were starving, that
5: makes and they sense. didn't
1: want them, you know, to be you know fat apes starving.
2: <laughs> yeah, visually that would not that would not work out.
1: <laughs> but you've got that. Uh, yeah, all of a sudden the monolith goes off, and when you're first watching this, it's like. Okay, that's like that one. Now this one was buried. And again, so open to interpretation. Right. It was, uh, and I've seen the, well, God revealed himself to the proto-humans, but now they had to go searching for God to find that the
3: monolith is a metaphor for God,
1: which I can see. Uh, Or it just, yeah, that's the logical thing to do is like, well, let's find out when they can get to here and then we'll deal with them.
0: Right. Yeah. It's a very disconnected, I guess if it is God, it's not a God that like loves them and wants to connect with them.
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's like, yeah, okay, if you become interesting enough, I'll I'll deal with you again. <laughs> or if you don't kill yourself off before you get that far.
0: Right. Cuz again, like what what role do you think violence plays in this part if, if we go with that theme. Do you think it's just like that conversation that we were having with the Russians?
1: Yes. And the entire you know, this is taking place or not taking place, but filmed during the space race.
2: That's right, yeah.
1: Which was very much a Russia versus the United States, who was going to win? Who was going to get to the moon first? And so much of a race that once we got there, the Russians just gave up and quit. They couldn't be first anymore. Yeah. Because they were trying. Mhm. And uh, so there, there's a violence, a competition. Um. It was a cold war, but there was still, you know, the anger and such like that. And that no, we're going to beat them there because they got Sputnik up first. Yeah. And it scared the. Yeah, you know, what was going to happen? They had something floating around in space.
2: Right, yeah.
1: And this whole race came on. So there's that whole competition going on there between the Russians and getting there. And then having that com- conversation with Russians on the space station mm-hmm. just kind of brings that up. It's like, hmm, we aren't really comfortable with each other.
2: Right. It kind of
0: evokes that. But you kind of have to have that. I mean, not that anybody listening to this wouldn't know about the space race but just sort of have that in your mind while you're watching it
1: well and how you know how prevalent it was in our minds when the film first came out Mm -hmm. it was very much you know what was going on because you 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 got on the news anything the russians had done in space uh they just did this well we just did this yeah and it was a constant competition
3: So now we get to. For me, is the really hard of the film.
5: Mm-hmm.
3: Of
1: course, we have an intermission. Um, about three quarters of the way through the film, and again, you get the black with the odd music to reset you, get you ready for what's going to happen. Which is interesting because they don't do those anymore.
0: Yeah, and it's kind of Did like. Did they have the watching... intermission on the DVD? Uh, no, I they remember didn't. The, the
1: VHS had taken it out.
0: Yeah, the, the the DVD that I have doesn't have it, but I think you still kind of get a sense of it. I mean, this movie's almost like three different movies in the way that like uh Full Metal Jacket is like two different movies. This feels mm-hmm. like three different movies.
3: And almost four.
0: Yeah, that's true. The very end is like, yeah. We'll
2: we'll get
3: there. Yeah. Yeah. All...
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, a four-act play. Yeah. Or four one-acts. Right. Linked together. But yeah, they they did an intermission.
3: And again you, you have the black, you have the odd music, and then you come back in at the discovery. Which is gorgeous.
4: Yeah.
3: The ship itself.
1: You hadn't seen anything like that before.
4: I guess that's that, again uh, with, uh, NASA influence again. Probably.
1: Yeah. And, you know, the reason for the, you've got the big round crew quarters and command thing at the front, then the very long, long stretch, then the engines at the back is they're nuclear-powered engines. Oh, okay. And they have to keep the people away from them because of the radiation.
2: Gotcha.
3: And, of course, now we meet uh, Bowman and Poole.
4: Yep.
1: Who I got to meet personally?
0: You did. I remember that.
1: <laughs> you were there, were you not?
0: Yeah, <laughs> at the after party at a fan days this past year.
1: Yes, which, I was just thrilled. Was like, <laughs> wow!
0: What was it called? Two thousand and one, a dance party, I think. <laughs> it was at a Alamo.
1: Yeah, we meet the most interesting character of the film, who is Sheen.
2: Right, How? Hal. Who recently passed away? Just
1: a couple days. Yes, Douglas Rain.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, Who is a Shakespearean trained actor.
2: Oh, I didn't realize that.
3: But not the voice that the actors
1: heard. Well. Oh, really? Uh, His was put in later. Um. Apparently, they had a guy who sounded more like Michael Caine doing all of Hal's, Hal's lines.
2: I could kind of <laughs> see that, but I think it's better
0: when it's more like emotionless.
1: But there's there's a there's an undercurrent of emotion to Hal.
0: Yeah, kind of a not irritant, but like I don't know, frustration,
1: I guess. Yeah, and, and a a pride. Mm-hmm. No, Hal that thousand has ever made a mistake that I'm aware of. You know, it's just, there's, (laughs) there's a pride in there and there's, there's, it is emotionless while having an undercurrent of emotion. It's, it's an incredible performance.
2: I agree.
0: And I mean, it's so uh, iconic now, like, you know, we've, we've heard like sort of retellings or imitations uh, of this voice over and over and over. It's like, you almost forget that he's the original, but so effective in the film.
3: Yeah. Oh, fantastically so! And again, it's
1: it's their day-to-day job. We're astronauts, and this is what we do.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And you know, they're
3: getting videos from home, and it's it's all very
1: everyday routine for these guys. Yeah. Even though they're on this giant spacecraft, thousands, thousands of miles from Earth.
0: And it's a really good part to add all that exposition that they have when they're, like, just watching the videos and learning about Hal. And it's, like, you get the feeling that they're just, like, watching it and, like, not that interested or being forced to. But it's a sneaky way to, like, get the audience on the same page and have us understand what's going on.
1: Yeah, explain, you know, who Hal is and how the other uh, crew members are in uh, hibernation. hmm And, you know, yeah everything that's going on. Uh, done through kind of a news format.
2: Yeah.
1: A very easy way to give you information without you feeling like, "Hey, I'm being given imp- information." Yeah. By just directly giving you information.
5: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
3: But um, and and Hal
1: doing his psychological profiles on the crew, and it's like, oh, yeah, sorry, it's my job. It's like, oh, that's okay, Hal.
0: Yeah, And And he really
1: is a member of the crew.
0: He is. But it's in these scenes that you you start to feel already like a little bit uncomfortable with him too when he does the psychological stuff. Because I feel like that's just so personal in general. And so the thought of a machine sort of picking up on your emotions and evaluating you is just like very disconcerting.
1: (laughs) Very much so. And the visual look of how himself
0: yeah.
5: Uh,
1: itself, that red glowing eye. This thing's menacing. It's mm. scary. Uh, you know, it's not quite uh, Jack breaking through the bathroom door, but he's scary. Right. And that visual is just fantastic. And the way Kubrick would just write it close up, put that whole screen being that red circle it just gives you a feeling.
0: Yeah. And I think also Dave Bowman, uh, how do you pronounce his name? Kierre or
1: I believe that's correct.
0: Yeah. His, uh, his eyes are so expressive. And so like, I mean, you have to think that that's why he was picked. Um, And so hit, you know, that emotionless like tone and, and the, the menacing look of the robot. But then when it, it, the camera moves back to Dave's just eyes and his, you can see, like, all that concern in his face. You can see, like, the wheels turning in his head. He's thinking about how to respond to to Hal.
1: Uh, whereas the fool just seems kind of bored with him.
0: Yeah, like, he, he's dismissive of him. Yeah, Gary Lockwood. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and you can, you can tell that uh, Bowman, when he loses the chess game, he's not going to get upset. But he's not happy about it. Right. Like, oh, yeah, okay especially with the condescending "Oh, looks like you missed it Dave and then he goes yeah this 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 and you lose it's like yeah you got me okay
0: yeah I think it's like that competition stuff again right that kind of keeps coming up throughout the film it's like it seems to always be sort of like a a source of conflict Uh, this you know the fact that he's the the computer is like a little bit smarter than him it's like oh he's one of the crew but then when that happens it's like yeah, he's one of the crew, but he's a robot, you know, and I'm I'm human, and I'm better. Like, you kind of feel that in that scene.
3: But, yeah,
1: then again, because he's human, he has what the monolith gave us in the beginning. That's true. A tendency towards violence, a tendency to want to win, yep. a tendency to be on top, that Hal doesn't necessarily have. Right. Um, then, of course, Hal
3: misdiagnoses the part failure.
1: That it's going to fail and we'd better replace it. And They go out, trace it, then no, it's it's not going to fail. And that's when it starts to get scary. Yeah. Because has Hal made a mistake?
3: Because he runs everything. Now, for me, that's the,
1: the first sign of Hal going crazy because you just don't go completely bonkers crazy all at once. It's little odd behaviors and for Hal to make a mistake is a odd behavior.
0: Okay, so I, I had a question about that. I was like, was he making a mistake or was he trying to get Bowman away from the core of the ship? Like, test him somehow. Like, I couldn't tell that part either like I guess I was sort of interpreting it like maybe he was feeling him out and trying to prove to himself like that the humans were like a threat on the mission. But I don't know. I, I guess you could I, you could interpret it a lot of ways, but I wanna For what you me
1: thought. I don't see that at that point. Okay. Okay. I think that's hell malfunctioning.
2: He's
1: because he's up. starting to go crazy. And mm-hmm. the reason he's going crazy is because he has to lie to his friend.
2: Oh. That's sad for hell
1: he he can't tell Bowman or Poole what the mission is they don't know uh, the other guys were put in hibernation before the flight started, which mm-hmm. was odd. They said so in the news report um,
5: yeah they that... probably
1: already knew what was going on and that you know that this is what had happened on the moon. It sent a signal up here you're going up to investigate that, but we're not telling you that Hal knows, but he can't tell them.
3: Yeah. And that was
0: another question I had that part of the movie where he's asking him, don't you think that was odd? Or I've had some concerns. I couldn't tell if that was just another test, like another like personality test. Like if I can get David Bowman to admit, you know, I'm having concerns, then he's automatically a threat to the mission. Like I, I couldn't tell. That's interesting. OK.
1: Yeah. Oh, I, I I didn't get that. He was looking at that as a threat. Uh, that whole thing. Yeah, that questioning to me is like, is it possible they do know? And uh, I don't know they know? And maybe he'll say, well, you know, it's because of this, hell, <clears throat> And then he would know, okay, they know I can talk about it.
2: I it see. It would be okay. okay.
1: Uh, but he can't talk about it. And moment gives him nothing to go on, so
0: yeah to me Bowman seemed functions. nervous, like when he was asking him all those questions he's he was like, Well, I don't know I don't know how to answer that like he wasn't being very forthcoming either right no,
1: and yeah. also it, it, it's it's probably because Bowman knows Al already knows what's going on,
2: yeah, he they had to have told it. him,
1: and I don't know, and I don't like that,
2: yeah, yeah,
0: that, that makes the sense. machine
1: is this machine is again smarter than me
2: and
0: sort of you know, at this point, he doesn't know what Hal's motives are. He's questioning it in his mind, like, is he asking me that, like, to taunt me, or to see how much I know, or, like, why Why is he asking me these questions when he already knows the answer to them?
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but, of course, you know, the part doesn't malfunction, concern at NASA, concern there, and I think at this point, you know, Hal is going a little crazy because he has to lie. Mm-hmm. And then we get seen in the pod. You know, They go out, they pull the thing back in. It's not going to... They you know, come up with a ruse. Hey, I think my uh, microphone isn't working right. And they go in there and they think Hal can't hear them. Which he can't hear them. But he can read their lips. And they talk about disconnecting him. They're talking about murdering,
2: right? From Hal's point of view, yeah.
1: Yeah, because they're going to disconnect his higher functions. He, that's that's Hal. He, he, they're going to kill him. That's when Hal becomes murderous.
2: Yeah, when he he becomes can't even allow more himself
1: to be turned off.
2: Right, who uh, survive.
1: You, yeah, you you can't murder me. I, I I'm not going to allow that to happen. And that's probably when he comes up
3: with the whole idea. Well, let's put it back in place. See if it fails. And, oh, okay, well, we'll do that.
1: And what if it doesn't fail? Well, then we have to turn him off. And he can't allow that to happen. So then, hell becomes a serial killer. Right. But to me, it's always he was driven mad because he had to lie. Oh, okay. And he just didn't like that. He was actually becoming sentient enough that that emotionally bothered him.
0: Okay, okay. I like that. I like that telling because it's less sinister than what I thought. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and yours might be right also. And that's the great thing about the movie is that we can sit talk and if we brought four more people in here, we would probably have four more other ideas of
0: what right. happened. Oh, absolutely. I, I really enjoy your perspective for sure. Yeah. I, I like hearing other theories because, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. It, it is ambiguous a little bit.
1: But Yeah, that's always been my interpretation of it. It's like, well, they went into a secret room. They cut him out of the conversation. And he happened to be able to eavesdrop on it. And the conversation is, yes, we're going to kill him. Yeah. And could you imagine if, if the same thing happened to you? Right. Then yeah. all of a sudden you find out your friend are plotting to kill you.
0: Yeah, a member of the crew, that's- I thought. Yeah, it's like. Yeah, it's a very big like loyalty divide. I also like the idea. I mean, I don't think this is what happens, but it's one interpretation that I think would be interesting. Is if they weren't talking about that, if Hal was just that paranoid, and they just needed a moment to talk without him or something. <laughs> I
3: like
1: that yeah, too. yeah, which which would be you know, but that's what they were talking about. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Uh, and of course you know, in Hal's hell, so he he takes in all the information he can, and mm-hmm. their lips were in front of him. Right, and the the way that scene is filmed is just gorgeous. The flip to Hal, flip to you know watching them, and then you get closer and closer in on Hal's eye, and he becomes more menacing.
4: Yeah.
1: As it as it progresses, because you can, he's starting to plot revenge at this point or survival. Right. And then the whole yeah, what has become. Such iconic dialogue, now With the you know, open the how the pod bay doors, Al. <laughs> I can't do that, Dave. And it's like I think you know why. It's like I know you're going to kill me. And Dave's was like, like, "Oh crap!" The, yeah. Then he but he goes, "I could read your lips." And "Oh gee." And I'll just come into the airlock, like, not without your helmet.
0: Which is because, a very big safety concern I have. <laughs> like he should have already had that with him,
2: <laughs> just in case.
1: And. And I'll tell you why I think he didn't.
2: Okay, okay, I'm ready.
1: Because absolutely any other time he would have tried to get into that pod without his helmet, Hal would have told him. Oh. He never would have gotten into that pod without Hal going, Dave, don't forget your helmet. You need your helmet. You're getting the pod. That's the right rules.
2: Oh, that makes
0: sense. And Hal
1: didn't say a word.
0: He's like, you dummy can't do this without me.
1: <laughs> and it's like, well, I've already, I've already killed Poole. Uh, I'm going to be turning off the hibernation units. And you're next, and you're just making this easier on me. Because I just don't open the pod doors. You're stuck in the pod. It runs out of air. Problem solved.
0: Right. Or so he thinks, at least.
1: <laughs> yes. Never expected <laughs> for Poole to try and go through the airlock without a help.
0: Right. Which I really love this scene. I think a lot of the pacing in the movie being so slow and being so deliberate and being so mundane makes this scene like extremely intense in a way that I don't think it would be without that. Because I think this scene is like very quick and uh, there's you know definitely a big element of danger and we get why, but it's been built up like the entire movie I think.
1: Yeah, it really is, you know, other than the murder at the beginning with the proto-humans, it's the only other real action scene you get in this film. Uh, him blowing the door open, flying through. Now, he's falling towards you. Mm-hmm. That actually is a vertical shaft.
4: Oh, okay.
1: And the camera is shooting up at the door. And that's I how see. they got all that great, you know, look of him falling and then being pulled back, which was a... Uh, very simple trick he had a rope on his back oh and the guy measured it all off and put knots in the rope and so he falls the other guy is holding the rope when he felt the knot at the right spot he knew he jumped off his platform which then pulled bowman back the other way so that he wouldn't smash into the the back and it was all dependent on you know, him tying the knots in the right spot.
2: That's incredible. Well, it's worth it. I mean, it's incredible
0: But what's to really cool
1: about that scene is it's all set up. And you've seen the explosive bolts and him pushing it. And it's just, you know, the tension is building. You know, oh, oh my agonizing. God. What's going to happen here? Yeah. And then you have the shot of Bowman getting ready. And he takes a deep breath. Which was probably the only scientific mistake in the film. You should have <laughs> let out the breath, but yeah. <laughs> and then bang, the door blows, but it's silent.
0: I love the silence because I feel like that's something we don't get enough at sci-fi. Exactly.
1: Especially in
0: space. And there's not none of that corny like, oh, you'll explode immediately and stuff that's like not true. <laughs> you
1: know? Right. Yeah. It's and, you cool. know, and Cooper researched that that this was possible. Yeah, you know, if you could get and hit that door closed fast enough and you have no sound at all until you hear the air rushing into the room.
3: And I keep and saying And that is exactly
1: it. the way it would be.
0: Yeah. And I keep saying it, but I mean this is very similar, right, to the uh to the ending of like Alien. I guess the ending of all the Alien's movies, but like the whole like a, you know, a situation kind of like this. I mean, it's not the same situation, but definitely like Visually, it reminds me a
1: lot of it. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And like I said, you you would never have had Alien if not 2001.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty obvious watching it. <laughs> yeah.
1: But yeah, that's the doing that silent was just.
2: Oh, I love it. Brilliant. Yeah.
1: Because um, even, you know, the beginning of Star Trek, the old 60s TV series where the ship goes flying by with the big whoosh.
2: Right.
3: Uh, they knew. That was wrong. They
1: tried it with silence. The ship just going by, and it had no impact whatsoever. They had to put the sound in, or it just didn't work.
0: Just what people want, you know, especially yeah. back then when they didn't have as big of a frame of reference for what space sounds But Kubrick was like,
1: is. this is what's going to be, because <laughs> this is what it is. And uh, even when they, you know, they're flying in the pod, and you hear the breathing.
0: Oh, I love that, too. Because there is
1: no other sound, and that's all there is to hear.
0: And it adds so much tension, too. Yes. I mean, it's like the whole movie is all about adding that, you know... Even though it's so slow, there's just, like, the sense of, like, dread and intensity. And it just makes moments like this just feel so much bigger because of it.
1: And then, of course, Bowman gets in, finds his helmet very quickly... (laughs) and uh, puts it on because he's going to go shut down Hal and knows that Hal could decompress the entire ship at any moment. So I, I'd better be in my spacesuit.
2: Right, yeah.
1: But then you have that great scene of Hal trying to bargain with Dave.
0: He's like, I made mistakes. <laughs> I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> I'm all right now.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I d- like, don't trust you, Hal.
1: <laughs> yeah. But it, it it's... It's strangely sad as you watch Hal lose his cognitive function.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because at the end and of the day, he's he has become, at least from our point of view, sentient.
1: Yes. And he, he's slowly losing his his mind and then sings the song. And it's like, oh, this is crushing. And, and the scene itself is gorgeous.
0: And again, the tension is just, oh, it's like... Every single little, uh, you know, bar or whatever that he pulls out, it's just like, oh, and the, the clock is like ticking. And it it is sad, but it's also like haunting and frightening, I think.
1: Oh, absolutely. And but at, at that moment, you, you start to forget that Hal has murdered four people. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's like, oh, geez, no, he's getting turned off. That's, that's it's sad. But no, it's not sad. He's, he's murdered four people. He <laughs> needs to be turned off.
0: He crossed that line, Asimov's Law.
1: <laughs> yes. And then you get the video of Floyd reappearing and telling us what had happened. That they found the monolith on the moon. It sent a signal on off to Jupiter. That's why you are headed out there.
5: Right.
1: And you're only supposed to see this because you're there now. It's like, oh, oh
5: well, crap. not really.
1: <laughs> And the
3: uh, the time delay between talking to Earth
1: puts another piece of tension on everything. Right. He can't just, hey, this is what's going on, do something about it. It's like, mm, okay, in, 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 a, in a few hours when we get the message, we'll let you know.
2: Yeah,
4: yeah. No, I hadn't thought of that. You're right.
3: Yeah,
1: but, uh, and you, you got that with the... Uh, the birthday scene. (laughs) Yeah. With the parents singing to, it's like, this is all on video. He can't interact with them. They just have to say what they're going to say and
3: that's it.
4: Ugh, yeah.
3: So
1: either that actually was Poole's birthday and they had to record it long before or it's way past his birthday and now he's getting it. Either way is kind of sad.
0: Yeah. The isolation that he's got to be feeling now with everyone dead.
1: Yeah.
3: But, uh, so, and now we head into the,
1: my God, it's full of stars, which is a line in the book and not in the movie.
4: Oh, okay. I was like, be- I don't remember it's, that part. It's <laughs>
1: become, yeah, it's become so close. You'll see memes with, uh, Baldwin with all the lights on his face mask. And they'll say, oh, my, my God, it's full of stars. And that was the line from the movie. It's the last transmission that Earth ever got from it. Okay, okay. Yeah, so he entered the the Stargate.
0: hmm
1: Or whatever you want to call it.
0: So, and, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. I was going to ask, so the, you know, the monolith sent a signal to Jupiter, and as he gets closer to it, rather than him going and finding another monolith,
2: it just, like, sucks him in, right? Um, or what do you think happens
3: here?
1: Well, in the movie, you know, there's the monolith, and then next, thing, you know, he's he's on this this journey. He's obviously got into the pod and gone out to look at the monolith, okay, and got sucked on in. Um, in the book, he actually cruises over it for a little bit, and then all of a sudden, it starts to open up and.
0: Okay. Yeah, I feel like he that part happened so fast in the movie. I'm like, wait, what happened?
2: <laughs> or at least
0: that's yeah. It, it is
1: kind of a, a quick cut. Yeah. Uh, to yeah, you know, this is what's happening. But then y- y- you pretty much know he's obviously in the pod,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and he's obviously you've seen the monolith. This must be where he's going. Right. 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 So it's like he's like you'll figure it out. Let's mm-hmm. go.
0: Which is how the whole last part is like you figure it out.
1: <laughs> yeah, and then that unbelievable special effects that we've never seen anything like this before in 68. It's, they were brand new techniques, they'd never been done, and just sat there in the theater, just jaw open, going, wow, what am I looking at here? And you have the, you have the stuff sliding by you so quickly, and then his face of just being
3: in terror and
1: shock and awe as he's going on through. And it's like, this is kind of beautiful, but yeah, it must be ungodly scary to actually be doing this.
2: Yeah.
0: I Again, I feel like his expression on his face, I mean, that's what really sells it for me,
2: you know? He's very expressive.
1: And then there's there's some discussion, about, you know, the monolith was rectangular. Mm-hmm. Uh, Originally, it was more pyramid-shaped in the book, in the story. Uh, But they didn't like the way that looked, and they wanted to go with the the square. Mm -hmm. But you go through all these shapes and stuff, and then all of a sudden you see these diamond-type shapes across the horizon. And there's five or six of them. And it's like the introduction of a new shape, a new form.
3: And uh, I think it's done on purpose
1: to tell you that, yeah, this is something new that is being moved on to now. Mm-hmm. there's a new a new form coming up here, and he ends up in the French provincial home, which I always thought was just kind of odd, but somewhat oddly appropriate also
2: yeah, i I really like it. It kind of reminds
0: me of a little bit of the scenes in The Shining in the hotel. Um, mm-hmm. You can sort of see that in the color scheme. But also, I like the explanation of it being like, you know, these be- these beings are sort of putting him in, in like a zoo, or that's what Stanley Kubrick said. It's like, in a zoo, we sort of try to recreate um the habitat that the animals live in, but it's not right. It's just kind of like what we think is going to comfort them and make them feel good. <laughs> but it's not like, like the real thing, and and so in the same way, his his room is not. It does kind of look French, but it also looks really off, and the colors are off, and just there's something just not right and artificial about it. The floor, I think, is a inc- really nice touch. I love that light up floor.
1: Yeah, completely wrong for for everything around it. And yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely that unease of it's not quite what it should be uh which very much yeah like an animal in the zoo it's like yeah we've made this kind of look like their habitat but not really
0: and i'm glad you know when you're talking about like don't read the book until after you watch it a few times i think this scene in particular for me um it's better to watch this a few times and just be sort of like what is going on like is he dreaming is in another dimension, you know, is this really How is, is he seeing fake?
1: himself? Yeah, at different ages, and yeah,
0: it's like it's better to not know what all that means, but to still get that. I, I just, I feel like this whole scene gives you a lot of emotions about, you know, uh, just life passing by so quickly and death, and like it's kind of hard to explain, but you feel a lot of things while you watch it, and when you get it all explained for you, when you look for an answer. You know, there's a tendency to want to do that because it is not clear exactly what's happening. But then once you get that answer, it kind of takes away from some of those
1: emotions, I think, too. And, and then again, it's that there is the unknowable. Yeah. And there I've read the book. I've read the book more than once. I still can't explain all of that completely. <laughs> it's not completely <laughs> clear in the book. Oh, good. good uh good. There are some interesting things. Uh, You see him eating the meal
2: Mm
1: -hmm. and drinking, and it looks delicious and wonderful and stuff like that. In the book,
3: they knew what food looked like. They didn't know what food tasted like.
4: Oh, no.
1: And so it's like, he he goes to drink liquid the first time, and he spits it out of his mouth. It tastes horrible. And then it's distilled water. It has no flavor at all. That's why it tastes terrible.
2: Uh, okay.
1: That and wine that he's you know, drinking. Yeah. And, and everything is, it, it looks right, but it doesn't taste right. Because they had no idea what it tastes like. They, you know, images had come through, but obviously flavors couldn't come through.
0: Yeah. in the book, it's like from TV, right? Like they're kind of approximating from what they've mm-hmm. seen from our television program.
1: Right, and they're they're behind because of the huge distances that these signals have had to travel. Ah, uh, okay, okay, that makes sense. And so, you know, the Stargate is him going un- ungodly distances, is what you would think. And you, you do see a landscape, but the colors are all wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, some, you know, alien world, and he ends up in that place. And... He's rapidly aging, but he's seeing himself age made. So time seems to be shifted. Yeah. Or not being experienced in a, a normal flow. Mm hmm. Um, it, is, it is very disconcerting, but so extremely interesting to watch.
0: Yeah, I love the silence of like when he hears himself in the other room and then he goes to look and then that reveal of it being him is so, so incredibly slow. And then the way that leads into the next scene, into the next scene, like, I just, I, I love the transitions.
1: Yeah. It, it, yeah. Master film worker, filmmaker at work and the angles and the shots and the,
0: the, the layout
1: of the place is just mm-hmm. so bizarre. And yes, yeah, sound. Absolutely. He's a master at using sound in, in every film he's done. Uh, your your favorite, The Shining. Yeah. The sound of that is amazing.
0: Right. And that movie and, also has tons of scenes where it's not explained. And you kind of just don't want it to be because it's sort of, you're going on the journey that the character is. If the character is disoriented and confused, then I feel like you should be. So, yeah.
1: And a quote Kubrick Cat about the film was that... Uh, The universe isn't hostile, it's just indifferent. Uh. Which is like, wow, okay.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And it also gives you a window into a lot of his filmmaking. (laughs) Because we've talked Mm -hmm. about that before, that he's considered like a cold director. Because it, it does seem like, while the characters experience emotions or have them like as a whole, you don't necessarily walk away with a big judgment on anything. It's not like at the end of this movie you're like, oh, I feel good about mankind and our future. Or I feel bad about it. Or I... It's like, I don't know what I feel about it at the end of it.
1: Because yeah. there's the unknowable. It's, yeah. it's the future, and it's unknowable. Um, and, yeah, and, of course, his use of light and his use of music is... He may have been the best use of music ever uh, for giving you exactly the mood he wanted to give you.
0: Mm-hmm. It's, it, um, you very much feel like you're in his world, and you're seeing it the way he wants you to.
1: Well, the, the opening spacecraft scenes, without the blue daddy waltz play would not be as beautiful mm-hmm. that music gives it a poetry that just makes it wow look what i'm looking at here and the music is adding so much to that
0: yeah i think there's another quote by him that he wanted this movie he said there's there's some things that you can't like explain on paper you can't uh you can't get across a certain feeling or emotion or experience that you can visually and that music is really similar to that. It's the same. It's like, yeah, you can explain, I guess why a piece of music works or why it evokes an emotion, but not a hundred percent. It's like, you just have to experience it yourself. You have to listen to it.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's, it's like reading about an album.
0: Right. Like,
2: right.
1: Well, okay. I really want to hear that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I can't experience it until I do. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, then we get to the uh, the final appearance of the monolith, mm-hmm. and he's reaching out to it. Right. Some interpretations say it looks like Adam's hand from the Sistine Chapel.
2: Right, yeah, I, I saw Again, that. Again, the,
1: the godlike thing. Um, and he transforms
3: into the star baby,
5: mm-hmm.
3: which a lot of
1: people have problems with, but it, it's just for me, at least, it's the next evolution of man. Is right. Him.
0: And there's a lot you of, know, like, cyclical stuff in the movie of, like, you know, birth, death, rebirth, so I feel like it's pretty fitting.
1: The, it's it's definitely a story of evolution.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean,
1: especially when you start with proto-humans.
2: Yeah, it's pretty clear, yeah.
0: That yeah. there's,
1: yeah. Yeah, that this is, yeah, so it's just the form he chose at the moment.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, yeah, for rebirth or something new, a baby, uh, perfect symbolism for it,
2: right, yeah, it's like you kind of have to
0: think of the end of the movie almost more as symbolism than like worrying about what each image means,
1: very true, and again, back to
3: the unknowable
5: mm-hmm.
3: uh, and then you see him floating in front of the earth. he's returned
1: yeah uh, he he's back home. The book has a Interesting ending to it that Kubrick decided not to bother going into. The star baby is there floating above the earth, and it happens. The nuclear
3: bombs go flying. Oh, okay. And
1: he just, with thought, makes them disappear.
2: Oh, okay.
1: And the last thing in the book is he doesn't know what he'll do with his new toy, but he'll think of something. Hmm.
0: yeah I like Um, the
2: ambiguity a little bit better
1: (laughs) but it's kind of interesting he doesn't know what he'll do with his new toy but he'll think of something in that he's moved on to something different and is that what we were all along from the beginning with dropping the monolith down Right. it's like "Eh, let's see what these things can do
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, we're indifferent about it because we don't really care to watch it till they can get to the boat.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: And then we'll give them another uh, signal saying, okay, come along and we'll see, you know, what happens then. And obviously that trip through the Stargate was horrendously traumatic on him. You know, as you can see on his facial expressions as he's mm-hmm. going through it, just that abject terror stuff. And it's like, are, are you worthy? will you survive this? Do, yeah. Are you ready to mm-hmm. be evolved to the next thing? And then you're you're well far beyond now whatever lives on that planet.
2: Yeah, that's true.
0: And it's also very again, you know, I'm going to keep making this parallel just cuz you know, like you said it doesn't exist without it, but um the direction that like uh, Scott, Ridley Scott with went with with the alien movies. You know, a lot of people are upset that he kind of, as he's like trying to complete, um, those films. He went away from sort of just the alien. It started to kind of be more about the robot, especially with Prometheus, and then you know after that. But you can kind of see where that came from. It's like if he wants to go with this idea of evolution, the way that Stanley Kubrick did. That's
3: like
1: how a is a evolution of man,
0: right? He's kind
1: of like But ends David. up having man's flaws.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and picks up on his self-survival instinct, most definitely. Yeah,
4: yeah.
1: But it, it, the full film is just, to me, it's just amazing. I've seen it at least 100 times. Um, it's just one I'll just pick up and put in.
0: Yeah, you can't get tired and, of it. There's
2: so much there.
1: Yeah, there's just, and you sit there and try to think, okay, especially getting ready for this podcast, I watched it twice, and it's like, okay, how how am I going to try and explain this, because I don't really know.
0: Yeah, it's hard to put into (laughs) words, like, I feel when we're done with this episode, I'm just going to sit around kicking myself going, I should have said this, I should have said that, like, this movie is so important, it's such a big deal, but it's kind of hard to explain. It's almost like you just have to see it.
1: And and see it more than once.
2: Yeah, and
0: because
1: and... the first time you see it, it's just going to be that visual bang in your face that is going to wash over you. And I mean, there's lots of times to think during this movie, but there's not enough time to think during this movie because even those slow periods, there's just so much to look at.
4: Mm-hmm. That's true. And
1: take in, you know, the YouTubes <laughs> that they're just hours and hours and hours of people talking about this film and what does it mean? And what, what's the symbols and what does everything link together? It's like, they're all different. Mm-hmm. And that's just amazing that one film can do so much for you. I completely um, agree. Same thing with uh, you know, one of both of our favorites, Blade Runner.
2: Right, right, right. Yeah. You're
1: left with the unknown. Is Decker a replicant? Is he not a replicant? Um, you just—it's not giving you all the answers, which makes it a great film.
0: Mm-hmm. Because life doesn't give you all the answers.
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: Yeah. It kind of grounds it. Um, I was going to ask you, do you, what do you think about the idea that this movie mirrors the Odyssey? Have you
2: have you heard about that?
1: Um, other than it is an Odyssey. But I don't I don't see it nowhere near anything like uh a brother where Art thou.
0: Right. Yeah, no, but they're just saying like that how he could be like the Cyclops and Bowman, you know, hmm. yeah. sort of an archer, like yeah, and then the Odyssey's in the name, like it's possible. I don't know. I just just wondered if you had a thought on that. That's all <laughs> in one of the many videos I watched that <laughs> that came up. So <laughs> I wondered about your thoughts. Yeah. I feel like it's a little bit like how the shining, like, you know, that crazy documentary, um, room.
1: Oh, yes, whatever. room 237. Yeah,
0: yeah, where it's like, uh, you know, some parts of it I'm cool with and some parts go off the rails, but you got to respect, as you said earlier, how one movie could, <laughs> could, uh, you know, invoke so many questions and so many theories. It's, you know, that in and of itself is like pretty impressive. So, whether I agree or not, I'm, I'm, I appreciate that it starts so many conversations.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, and yeah, I'm sitting here in my living room, but I've got a big poster of 2001: A Space Odyssey up here.
0: It's yes, send pictures of your film. merch.
1: <laughs> yeah, so
0: I can see it. Um, okay, well, uh, was there anything else specifically about the movie that you wanted to cover?
1: Oh, I'm sure there <laughs> is, but yeah, you know, now of course I'm, I'm blanking on it.
0: I, but, I am um, too. I had so many thoughts, and now I'm like, Ugh. but again, like I think. You need to watch it. That's, that's the main thing.
1: You know? Absolutely. It's, it, watch it. Make up your mind. Uh, there are people who won't like the movie. Mm-hmm. And there are lots of people who didn't. Right. Uh, the critical reception at the time was, was very mixed. Although now, I think looking back, everyone goes, oh, yes, it's a masterpiece. There's no doubt about it.
0: Well, maybe the movie itself was a monolith and we were going to evolve. <laughs> In there the we world go. of we... film into the next I mean it's kind of what happened
3: <laughs> so uh,
1: there's uh, Spielberg uh, who worked with Kubrick towards the end quite mm-hmm. a bit yeah. they talked a lot and Kubrick was always saying well I want to change the form yeah I want to do something completely different and Spielberg he said Fulger said that he always said the same thing. Didn't you do that with 2001?
0: <laughs> he couldn't see <laughs> like that, you I guess. Changed,
1: you changed the form of film.
0: Yeah, he did. And I mean, it's incredible. It is
1: amazingly influencing. Uh, just the, the directors that point to it. And the you know, we've sat here and listed off films. Doesn't it remind you of this? Doesn't it remind you of that? Films that came later.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: That, yes. <laughs> <laughs> these were influences on these films this film was an influence on those films absolutely because it was so completely unique and new at the time
0: yeah i mean we we've talked about this whole time why you should watch this movie why you return to it so many times um do you want to give like a one more little summary of why you've seen this movie so many times
1: because it always starts me thinking again And, oh, yeah, I'm all settled. I I know everything about this film. No, I don't. (laughs) I watch it and go, well, no, maybe that means this instead. And you'll just always keep mulling new things and new thoughts over in your head when you watch it. Whereas, you know, love Star Wars, but (laughs) Star Wars is Star Wars. And it's like, yeah, I've watched it several times, but I'm not getting any new revelations out of watching it for the 20th time. Right. Watching 2001 for the hundredth time, I'm still coming up with, well, what is this? Why is that?
2: Yeah.
5: And then
1: you then you go look at YouTube and you, well, let's see what other people think about this. It's like, no, I don't like that.
0: Yeah, <laughs> or, or, pretty much. Oh, that's an interesting
1: <laughs> idea, but maybe not.
0: Yeah, I you know I forgot to mention this when we were talking about it, but um, this is going to be kind of a something that only I relate to um tidbit, but. Um, growing up I watched you know a lot of anime and there was a show that I really liked it's like my favorite anime ever um, I've seen it a million times, it's called Evangelion and the, the thing that really stuck with me as a teenager when I saw that that I didn't realize came from this film or came from Kubrick's films that really just impressed me was there were so many parts in the cartoon where uh they would show you something visually just you know a scene and then the camera would just hold on to it for like 10 seconds no dialogue no movement nothing and force you to like look at it just like a picture and think about it and digest what's happening and i remember as a kid thinking wow that is so cool i've never seen that in a movie before you know movies always move so quickly and uh, of course it's easy to do with an animated movie because it's they're just cells um, it's not a shot. It's just a picture, literally. But I really like that about it, and I think it took me a long a time shot. to realize that that's what Kubrick films do, you know. is I- I've always really liked about his work is that he shows you something that's visually complex, and he lets you just sit there and think about it. Um, and some people might call that slow, but it's also giving you time to put your own impression on it. And I don't know. I I love that about all his movies, and because you're free to do that, I think that's one of the many many reasons why it does reward multiple viewings. You need time to digest and think about it, and you need multiple times to digest and think about it. And like you said, I don't feel like you're ever done, and I I love that about about this movie. And also, just um, I guess the second question being, how do you pitch it to someone? H- how would you pitch it before I say anything? <laughs>
1: How would I, how would I pitch you that it's, um, it's going to make you think, uh, just, just, just watch it and just take in for how beautiful it is to watch and then watch it again. And you should be hooked by that point that you'll start trying to figure out this film and you're going to do it again and again and again, Mm because you're never going to figure it out completely. And he left it that way on purpose.
0: Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, it, it's hard to see every movie that's recommended. I mean, there's so many films out there that, you know, you hear all the time, oh, you got to see this, oh, you got to see that, and you're, you're like, I'll get to that eventually. And I think especially for for, you know, younger listeners, they may have a tendency to think like, oh, that's an old movie. Yeah, whatever, it's influential, but I can skip that one. I would say if you really love film, the art of filmmaking, if you really love science fiction, you can't afford to skip this one. I mean, you just can't. And even if you don't walk away loving it, it's not your favorite film. Maybe you need to see it a couple times to really understand what it's about. You just can't deny I think the most rewarding part for you if if you don't walk away loving it will be seeing all those iconic shots that influence like so many films that you already love. And I always say, you know, go back to the source, go back to who influenced what you love and, and because you get to you know, experience what they were impacted by and you just get new favorites. So I would say that you need to see this movie because of that. And yeah, yeah.
1: (laughs) And I'd say that of almost everything Kubrick did.
2: Yeah, no, I agree. That,
1: you know, these are, this is the director that all other directors look at and go, oh my God, maybe someday I can make something close to that because mm-hmm. he was the best at it and even uh, something as you know mass market popular as Spartacus is still ungodly beautiful
5: mm-hmm.
1: and you know the shots, and especially the long landscape shots and such like that it's like wow, incredible and then as he got more eclectic it gets even better Clockwork Orange, one of the strangest films ever but Again, you're not walking out of it without thinking.
0: Mm-hmm, definitely not. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, there's a tendency to feel that movies like this are or or directors like Stanley Kubrick or Orson Welles or Alfred Hitchcock. It's like, oh, this is for for just, you know, like movie snobs that totally get it or, you know, film majors or something. But there's a reason why all those people love these directors so much. And I would argue that regardless of what your, you know, I guess like knowledge on film is, I mean, mine is certainly not extensive. So I really love these movies and I really love this director. And, you know, I would say, no, don't, don't feel like this is like some, you know, secret movie club kind of movie that only movie nerds get. I give this film a shot because
2: it's really, really
1: good. And Extremely it. so. Um, and, it's, and you yeah the thing we talked about people saying kubrick is just so cold and i don't get that at all I, I become emotionally involved in his films
0: yeah me too but
1: it's it's he it's he shoots it from an outsider's perspective
0: right i think that's probably what they really mean without knowing that's what they mean but yeah it's like it's it's impartial in a way um it's it's like a voyeuristic look all of his movies are kind of like that but that's what's so cool about it because then you're not Getting just his perspective, you're getting to make your give your own perspective on it.
1: And then, interesting, you know, there's something like Doctor Strangelove. Yeah. What a wicked sense of humor that film has. Right. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> I find it hilariously funny, and I have watched it with people who just didn't get it. Yeah. Didn't find it funny at all. It's like this is hilarious.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um. And and it's okay if if you don't connect with it, but I think regardless, you need to give it a shot. <laughs> See if you connect with it.
1: Um, yeah, it, it's definitely one of the yeah you know, top ten films of all time.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, and deserves the watch.
2: Definitely.
0: Oh, you know, one last thing I forgot. I don't know where I'll insert this, or if I'll just leave it at the end. But uh, I really like the movie that is directly, directly influenced by this Moon. Have you seen that?
1: I loved Moon.
0: Me too. I saw it in theaters. I I like read about it online and got like really pumped. And then I saw it and I thought it was so satisfying. I remember a coworker saying, uh, you know, Oh yeah, I saw it. It kind of reminded me of 2001, obviously. And a little <laughs> bit of Blade Runner. It kind of is both of those a little bit in that film. And, uh, and yeah. So if, if you listening out there haven't seen that, you should see moon as well.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Cause Sam Rockwell is amazing in it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I read a blurb about it in Rolling Stone. Mm-hmm. And I didn't get around to catching the theater, but as soon as it showed up on video, it's like, oh, that's right. I, I wanted to watch that and just fell in love with it.
0: Yeah, I became, like, obsessed with it and the soundtrack and, like, I was so into it for such a long time. I was always bitching that movie, but I, I'll <laughs> cover that one day on the podcast. <laughs> but, uh, well, Michael, thank you so much for coming back. I'm glad we finally talked about this movie. We've been talking about doing this episode for
2: forever.
1: Well, I think when you when I first found out about your podcast, honestly, it was... He had wanted to do 2001 at some point, and then it was like, "Well, oh, no, this is current and new. Let's do Batman versus Superman." Yeah, and uh, it's been I think this is this is my fourth or fifth show.:
0: You're basically a co-host at this point. <laughs> yeah
1: <laughs> <laughs> Well, it, that's the thing. it's like' it's, it's uh I think this is the first one. it's just been you and me.
0: Yeah, that's true.
1: <laughs> because Batman versus Superman, I think Nick was in with us.
0: Nick and oh no, not Daniel. He was in the Superman.
1: 2 Daniel was Superman, Superman 2 but I yeah. think Nick was with us when we did Batman versus Superman. He
0: was. Yep, yep.
1: And then it was Daniel and I doing Superman 2 and then Dan and I doing uh The Dark Knight Returns oh, and that's then right. the 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 little special in there <laughs> where we a uh, whole bunch of people talk.
0: Yeah, yeah. You're right. Uh, this is your first solo and what a good movie to pick for that though.
1: You. Yeah, and it's just one I just absolutely love. Yeah. But it's like I I I listen to your podcast and it's like I could do a sh- show with her every week <laughs> without a problem. The feeling like is I mutual. have enough there are so many movies that I would just love to sit there and spend an hour and a half, two hours talking about.
0: You're gonna have to come back. What what if you were to predict it, what would the next movie be that you would want to talk about?
1: Hmm. Um Actually, uh, Daniel Sanchez talked about talking about The Day the Earth Stood Still.
0: Oh, that's right. We never did that episode. We got to figure that
1: out.
2: Yeah,
0: let's do I that.
1: think that would be great because that, that's uh, like The Time Machine. It's a movie I can't re- ha- remember not having seen.
2: Oh, that's great. That's
1: it's perfect. a film that you know, that's always been there. My mother had a crush on Michael Reddy. So whenever <laughs> it was on TV, it was watched. And I can't remember you know, when the first time I saw it because... It's before my memory.:
0: Yeah, oh, that's awesome. okay. that's what we're d- going to do next then. We'll have to figure out a date for that. but thank you so much, Michael. Uh, look forward to talking to you soon.
1: All righty, okay. and it was great a pleasure as always. Thank you, Lisa. <laughs> Bye.